0: Welcome to this interview with Girls Chase sex talk expert Alec Rolstad. Alec is a seduction coach from Europe whose specialty is using words to make women wildly lustful for the guy who's using them. That might sound almost unbelievable, but I've seen it in action and the stuff this guy can do with spoken language is simply unmatched. It's why I and many others consider him the most highly skilled technical pickup artist in the world. Today we'll be talking about using sex talk to turn on women with words. Alec will share some of the nuances of what he does so you can make your own sex talk more effective. We'll also reveal a brand new never before heard Alec Rolstadt sex talk gambit that sucks girls into your sexual prizing frame like gangbusters. Finally, we'll discuss the spots he's opened up in his advanced coaching roster and how to know whether you qualify to train with Alec. All right, Alec Rolstead. thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Chase. It's a pleasure to you know, have a little chat and share some knowledge and discuss the most interesting thing in the world.
0: Yeah. So as we record this, Europe is still dealing with these lockdowns and club closures. You're a nightlife guy, so how has that affected you?
1: Well, it was a cold shower because at first, you know... Uh, we thought this thing was going to end pretty quickly, but then you end up being locked inside for so long. I lived in a place where it was this kind of strict lockdown where you couldn't go out at all. So basically, I didn't interact with anyone. Uh, The only time I got to chat with a girl was when I was buying groceries and was the cashier, and she wasn't the most attractive woman. So, you know, it kind of got me back to earth and really, you know, feel a bit more like what most guys actually feel. And, you know, I was very afraid that once the lockdown would, you know, end that I would lose my mojo, but it turned out a bit differently. Nevertheless, it gave me a lot of time to reflect and learn a few things about myself. But I gotta admit, it was probably the biggest cock block I've experienced in my life.
0: Yeah, no doubt. So I've been following along with you as you've gone in and out of lockdown. So each time you've come out of lockdown, you've been worried that you might have lost your mojo, just like you're, what you're saying. So you're dealing with scarcity, you've got shaky confidence, yet each time If memory serves, right away you're out there pulling new girls into bed almost immediately. What is the reason for that? Are you just are you skilled? Have you done it so many times it's like riding a bike? Do your techniques let you bypass these inner issues, or what is the cause?
1: So I mean, let's be real. If you're locked inside and not socializing for so long, your momentum will be shit. You know, you'll feel a bit rusty. Your vibe will not be on top. You'll not get away with stuff that easily if you make a mistake. So. You know, most guys will struggle a lot because they don't have this natural vibe that can attract girls, especially when they haven't socialized for so long. What saved me in that moment was to stay calm and trust my knowledge, trust uh, my skills, and stay calm. Look at look at what's going on. Find the opening. Go in and do what, what has to be done. Basically, have the right response for each situation. Because even though your vibe gets shit, and that's of course unfortunate you still know what to do and how to deal with those situations, right? So basically what saves you when you're having like a bad state or in a bad momentum is your skills and your knowledge. That doesn't really disappear, right? So, you know, you know what to do. You have the trust in, in your game and you, that gives you a bit of confidence. And then, you know, stay calm. Don't take it personally that you're not in best shape. That's normal. And then do your best and results will come eventually. And the first night out, I struggled. I was totally freezing out after the first lockdown. I didn't talk to a single girl for one and a half hour. And then I saw an opening. It was a decently attractive girl, not too attractive. I got to talk with her. The conversation was just another conversation. And then suddenly, I was back in the in the mood, right? And then I could approach a really hot girl and got her. Actually, the report is on Girl Shays. So whoever wants to check it out is welcome. It's a very detailed one.
0: Yeah, I remember that report. So, um, you know... You were just talking about the the knowledge aspect, getting you back into it. So today we're going to talk about your method and your knowledge. So you use sex talk to do something you call sexual prizing. And paradoxically, despite being a guy who approaches a lot of women he does not know and starts talking to them about sex, you are risk averse and don't like rejection. So we're going to talk about how you get around that too. And we'll cap it all off by talking about the coaching spots you've opened up and what your requirements are for taking on a student. First. I want to ask you, because I think this will be the biggest thing for a lot of listeners. Why is it that most men who approach women in bars and nightclubs or on the street, in cafes, malls, parks, the beach, have to deal with so much rejection?
1: So first, of course, maybe the fundamentals are not right and they're not approaching the right way. But I think there is a more of a, let me put it this way, a framework issue or an overall issue. And that is lately we still love guys, they... They kind of want to go a bit too direct. You know, I've been a bit critical about direct game in my past, uh, but that is not really the big issue. The big issue is going too direct. Personally, I like to go indirect. That's my style. But the issue I see today is the too direct. The problem with being too direct is that you basically force the woman into a position where she has to be on defensive. What I'm trying to say with that is when you go direct, she has to either accept your approach by smiling back and, or she has to reject And women being risk averse more than I am, she will usually opt for the safe option, which is to reject because she doesn't know whether or not you're a safe guy or if you're a guy who is suited for her on a social level, or if you are a guy who's not boring or creepy or anything like that. She doesn't know. She doesn't know you. And even though she might be curious about you, maybe you're cute, maybe you're hot, maybe you're funny, whatever, even though she may be interested, but if she's not interested enough, she will choose the risk averse option. And it really doesn't take that much doubt in her to actually opt for the risk averse option, which is to reject. So what I suggest is that you don't trigger this mechanism. And that is to go in and be indirect or less direct. You don't force them into this uncomfortable position. And then that allows you to buy time so that you can convey attractive traits, things that will stimulate her, things that will make her see you as this suitable guy to have sex with. And then what happens is that eventually she'll become compliant and interested and that is when you tip the scales and she actually starts feeling, okay, that's the guy I want. But you don't want to trigger that response before you got those things settled that she knows for sure that you are the suited guy. And this is how you avoid rejections and even resistance for that sake.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's a dimension I think a lot of guys are not aware of. Because you see, guys that are going up, they're getting rejected by girls and they get really frustrated and they say, why don't any of these girls like me? none of these girls like me. I, I can't believe it. Or I thought that girl liked me, but she rejected me anyway. They don't realize that some of those girls did like them, but if they're triggering that defensive reaction and she starts turning to be you know, her risk-averse reaction, then it doesn't matter if she liked the guy or she was intrigued by the guy. She didn't like him enough that it's going to overcome the concerns that he triggered in her by whatever he forgot to do or misdoing. doing.
1: And of course, you know, there's always the dimension of them not being attracted. That, that's the reality of it. But many girls, many guys who get rejected, they get rejected by girls who potentially could have, you know, been with them or been att- who are maybe a little bit attracted to them even. But then they reject out of fear, out of fear that you may actually turn out to be creepy. And since you are pushy, she knows that if she accepts you, she will be stuck with you. So you kind of want to feel comfortable. Now, of course, you know, I think that even those who are not interested can be turned around, but that's much more complicated. So some of my students, they want to learn about that. Some don't really care about that, and that's fine. But the idea is at least to not end up with those like one in a hundred ratio, right? I mean, that is terrible. I mean, that's frustrating. I would start hating this stuff if that was me, right? Dealing with, you know, hundreds of rejections all day long. Or even fifty or even twenty a night, you know, that's enough to ruin your mood. So, you know, the first priority is to reduce those rejections so that this whole process becomes so much more pleasurable for both you and the girl.
0: Yeah, and we're gonna talk a lot more about that meet delay ratio, the one in a hundred, one in fifty, one in twenty, as we go through this interview. But one of the things that I noticed early on as an aspiring seducer was how most guys' conversations are very asexual. So a lot of guys try to be interesting or impressive, but they don't do anything to actually turn on the woman they meet. So is this a big problem for a guy who wants to be successful at seducing women?
1: Absolutely. But, I mean, there's also the other dimension. There's the guy who is just too bold, too sexual, too um, aggressive sexually. Yeah. Because, you know, they want to be quick. They want to be efficient. So they want to go all sexual. And also some guys just have high sex drives. And the problem is with those guys is that they Again, just like with the opener aspect, you know, not getting rejected after the opener, the same problem occurs with those guys because they also trigger this defense mechanism. And actually this time around, there's another defense mechanism, which is ASD, anti-slot defense. And so not only will she, may she reject you because she feels, okay, this guy's making a move. He may be a bit cute, but I'm not sure he's the right guy for me on a social level. So I may reject him because of that, just to be safe. Or she can feel uncomfortable like, okay, he may be a sexual harasser here. Okay, I'm gonna be careful, he's going a bit too fast. Or she may even just reject because, okay, if I hook up with him too quickly in front of my friends, I'll be you know, labeled as a slut. Or she may even feel like if I give in too early, he may start seeing me as a slut and treat me like one. So you know, there's all these fears and you really don't wanna trigger them because if you trigger her fears, things are gonna be so much co- more complicated, right? So that's why I tell the students, you, know, you need to push things forward but don't trigger fears unnecessarily, right? That's very important. Now, on the other guy, when it comes to the other guy, that's also a problem because if you are not being sexual, there will be no sexual frame. And when I'm saying not being sexual, I think it's important to kind of communicate actually a bit early on already that you are a sexual guy, either by talking about sex or touching or light touching or anything that can make her associate you with a sexual guy. Because if you forget that, You know, you may end up with that situation where you go home with a girl. She thinks you're a cool guy. She thinks you're funny. She thinks you're high value. She thinks you're sexy, whatever. But she never associated you with a sexual guy. So what happens when she goes home with you is that she ends up feeling like, oh, shit, this guy is actually sexual. But I didn't know he was. And then they experience like a form of cognitive dissonance. And that's basically the cause of last minute resistance, which can be so frustrating, especially to guys who are, you know trying to get better. You know, they've been working so hard, they finally get the girl back home, and then it just falls apart in the last second. And it's so frustrating, both in regards to their ego, but also in terms of the sex drive. You know, that that's how blue balls are made, right? So we really want to avoid that. So the way you avoid that is basically by being sexual. So she sees you as a sexual guy, and not only that, you'll also adjust the frames in a way that makes her not only see her as a sexual guy, but as a really sexy sexual guy, and also a sexual guy who she can feel allowed to be sexual in return with. Now, when you can do that, that is when magic happens. Because not only will you not trigger the offensive responses you know, from pushing too fast, but you will also get the benefits of having a sexual frame with less resistance later on as you escalate the vibe as uh, interaction progresses. So the idea is to have a balance, right? You know, not too much, not too little. Sweet spot, and that is where calibration comes in, which is a big part of my program. You know, we talk a lot about calibration, how to calibrate to the environment, to her response, to the girl, and the most important of all, in my opinion, which is so you know people don't speak enough about this is timings. Hit the right timings, because if you can actually capitalize on timings and be calibrated by calibrating to response and environment already there, you will go from intermediate to actually lower advanced right there. That's my opinion on this.
0: Right, because if you're the guy who's putting too much sexy stuff up front and it's not calibrated, then you're running into a lot more resistance and a lot more rejections right at the beginning than you need to run into. And if you're the guy who's waiting until much too late in the interaction to do that, then you're running into a lot more resistance later on than you need to. Exactly. So you want to be right in that Goldilocks sweet spot.
1: Exactly, exactly. And you know, many guys, they will try to be aggressive because they want to be, you know, sexually aggressive because they want to be uh, efficient. And those who are too afraid, they just want to be consistent. Like, I don't want to get rejected at all costs. But the problem is, if you focus only on efficiency and you have no consistency, then your efficiency will eventually fall apart. Because imagine if you get rejected by all women prematurely, and you get a premature rejection with all of them, then suddenly you have, first of all, no consistency, but you will not be very efficient either, right? And on the other side of the story, you have that guy who who is overly consistent, overly afraid, never makes a move, well, he will not get laid because he will miss the timings, she'll get bored, she will fail to perceive him as sexual guy, and then he will not be consistent either, nor efficient. So you're going to have that balance. And of course, within that balance, you may be a little bit more focused on efficiency by being a bit more aggressive, that's fine. And you can be a little bit more consistent by being more risk-averse and being more indirect. That's fine, too. But you always need to have more or less of a balance, you know, a minimal threshold of both. That's my opinion, This balance. It's it's key.
0: Yeah. So give me the bird's eye view on how you get around some of these problems that we talked about. So we get the rejection problem. We've got the girls not being turned on, girls not wanting you in conversation problems. How do you get around that? Just from the high-level overview.
1: Okay. So, you know what? Actually, I think I should talk about the not being turned on, because I think that's an issue that some guys do face. So I'm going to just mention a few words about that. And I think that the problem many guys face is that they try to believe that all they have to do is to stimulate, 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 and by that, you know, arouse her, which is touching, touching, touching. But they keep forgetting that there's also the other dimension, which is to make her feel allowed to be stimulated and aroused by you. Because if imagine for a moment that this guy is stimulating, but then she's resisting, then she will hold herself back from getting turned on by, by the guy, right? However, if he also reduces resistance, she will feel much more allowed, and she may even cooperate to create that sexual vibe. So, I think that one of the big problems many guys face is not that they're not able to you know, stimulate or arouse her, but that they are not making her feel allowed. And that blocks the whole process of escalating the vibe. So you want to make her feel allowed as well as desire. Of course, there's some guys who are afraid of escalating and stuff like that. You know, with those guys, I usually have a different approach, which is to basically make them feel more comfortable about being sexual. And the way I do that is to teach them techniques that, you know, are more foolproof from facing resistance. And I also teach them how to deal with potential resistance so that they know what to do when it happens so that this potential resistance becomes far less severe and far less scary because they know how to deal with it. So those are the two ways that, you know, I would advise guys who struggle when it comes to, you know, getting girls, you know, aroused and, you know, get the vibe sexual going with them.
0: Makes sense. So you've been teaching this to students for a couple of years now. How easy or how hard is it for guys to start using your sex talk sexual pricing methods and how quickly do they start to get smooth with them?
1: Okay, so usually you know when people there are two kind of people who you know, re- react to sex talk and it's quite different. The first one is those guys who believe that okay I'm too afraid to talk about sex. You know, what if she thinks I'm a creep? What if she rejects me and all that you know usually with those guys it's pretty easy to deal with that issue because they will realize that you're not actually talking about, you know, creepy stuff or something that she wouldn't talk about with her friends because women love talking about sex. Just look at Cosmopolitan. There's always this chapter about sex. There's always this, uh, you know, psychologist sharing advice. And basically, you want to take that role, you know, share those, you know, sexual knowledge, which in a way is a way of communicating sexual intent without communicating sexual intent because you're never telling the girl that you're actually gonna, you know, want to have sex with her. I'm not like I don't want to fuck you or anything weird like that. You don't put her in a defensive position. You're just a guy sharing interesting knowledge about sex, which indirectly will make her perceive you as this very, you know, sexy, experienced guy. And that is sexual pricing by the way. So you avoid triggering that, you know, resistance. Women don't resist sexual talking. You know, they don't really do that. They are only resisted when they feel pressured into that corner that you're trying to make a move and, exp- and showing too much sexual intent too quickly. So usually by letting the guy know that it's, you know, you're just going to have a conversation about sex like you and I could have right now. It's nothing more than that. And then you have the other guy who is more like, okay, this is complicated, so many words, so much to memorize. Well, some guys have a good memory, they can memorize and pull it off, that's great. But usually what I want to do is to teach them the mechanisms and some themes they can use so that they can deliver it with their own words. And then it becomes just talking about the subject, like talking about football or anything. And that's something they're able to do. And then, you know, just change the subject, football with sex, and you're basically doing sex talk. You're talking about who your favorite player is. Well, here you can talk about what your favorite position is suddenly, you know, even though that's a bit direct in a way. But... You know, you can talk about how how important it is for you to have the other person being present in the moment because that is when a real connection is created, something like that. I mean, no girl will consider you creepy if you say anything like that. So usually there's one who's afraid of the creep label, but the way I do sex talk is kind of risk averse. I never got rejected from it. Sometimes it didn't work, you know, because things happen, but I've never been rejected with it. Although it's very rare, it doesn't work because when it's delivered properly on time, the results are insane. And then there's the other guy who thinks it's too complicated and it's really not. Of course, you can make very complicated gambits, sure, but they don't don't have to be. That's basically the message I want to convey.
0: That's fun. I liked that football analogy. So now we're going to talk about some of your tips and we even have a new gambit today. But before we do, I wonder if you could give the listeners some of your own backstory. So there's not a lot of guys who choose seducing women as their hobby, and even fewer who make it to the best in the world status. So were you always good with girls? How'd you get to where you are?
1: So, well, I have this kind of a unique situation because I, um, I started when I was 15 in 2007, it's been a while. And it started from a, like, from a position of pain, like most guys who get into this. Usually I was excluded, started a new school, it was a bit weird, you know, got the people not you know, not fitting in, all that stuff. And eventually there were some guys who saw me as an easy target for, you know, bullying and stuff. So I I was you know, had a pretty hard time back in school when I was fifteen for, for a little bit. And you know, eventually things got you know solved. I solved the issues, but I couldn't solve it without you know the knowledge I got from the seduction community, which I found during that time which allowed me to understand social interactions and stuff like that. So, you know, many people, you know, they have this traumatic experience, you know, when they're younger and stuff, and then it takes a while, and then they eventually find this community. I actually found the community while I was in that trouble at as, as a young age. So in a way, that was, a, that was very fortunate. And, you know, first I started out with the intention of, you know, becoming one of those popular guys, play the social game. And there were, of course, you know, a few advices that helped me in, in that regard. But then eventually, as time passed, I started getting more and more popular. But I realized this is who cares, you know. And then I started having a new focus, which was to get, you know, get girls, get laid. And suddenly I was starting to go to clubs already at the age of 16, 17. I remember when the first time I went to a club, I froze up. I was like alone, sober in that venue with older people. I was shitting myself. But eventually, as time passed, I started getting comfortable with and even pulling, you know, at 17 back in the bathrooms. But that was after three years into this and practicing daily, reading daily. So, you know, eventually I started getting a good skill set, you know, hanging out with older guys from the community who thought me about, you know, stuff and got, got really good. And eventually I became very interested in just becoming better, see how far I could push it. And then, lastly, I actually got interested in the game itself. I, I think the theories are so interesting. The the knowledge, the, the techniques, everything. There's so much to uncover. So I really got deep, even more deeply into it and more focused and eventually led me to the, to my current you know studies, which is in social science, because of my interest in seduction in the first place.
0: Yeah, and now you're writing for Girls' Chase and one of the best-known guys in the world. And one of the most respected active PUAs and and uh, pickup artists, seducers, got all, all these guys that love your material, guys that use your material and, and doing coaching.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is that the more you get into it, the more you love it. Because, it you know, it's always this whole aspect of, you know, the better you get something, the more fun it becomes, right? And many guys, you know, they eventually kind of, you know, fade out, you get the results and stuff. But that is because they just so pick up on seduction as a mean to an end, whereas I see it as an end in itself. I think there's so much fascinating stuff to learn and discover.
0: It's been an amazing journey. So now you're, what, about 15, 16 years into this. So Any reflections after so many years spent in the
1: game? I have. Only one regret, and that is that I didn't allow myself to enjoy the learning process more than I did when I was a beginner. When you are a beginner and you're intermediate, you know, you face those very frustrating moments, you know, you almost get the girl, you get laughing in resistance, you beat yourself up for it and all that stuff. But, you know, in retrospect, I, I really regret not enjoying the process because I remember when you actually got success back then, it felt so good. It felt so amazing when you have one of those breakthroughs, right? Yeah. It felt so nice. And I kind of missed that. And also, you know, discovering new stuff, you know, exploring this whole world of possibilities and knowledge, you know, it was so exciting. Of course, it's exciting now, but on the, in a different way, you know, I've, I've seen it all. So it's, you know, I don't have this novelty aspect anymore, but, you know, I regret not enjoying that too much. Now, you know, as the year passes, I feel it's a bit weird because when I started out, I was this young guy, this wild little young kid, 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old, and now suddenly I'm, a, I'm an adult, I'm, I'm 30. And, you know, it's weird to see, you know, people who are my age starting out when I have been there in it for 15 years. And it's just like, wow, you know, it's fascinating in so many ways. But yeah, I have uh, no regret getting into this. So many amazing stories, so many adventures, and I'm still going out every night now when I can. I feel, I know something crazy is going to happen and that just excites me. That feeling, however, never gets old. This curiosity when you're dressed up, ready for battle and you step outside and you feel the air of the field, the smell of the field, the sound of the field and you're just like, okay, I'm ready for battle. Something crazy is going to happen and I'm ready and I'm going to enjoy it. That feeling never gets old and that's what kind of keeps me into it.
0: Yeah. The, the mystery of discovering new things that you can do or new capabilities goes away as you kind of figure out all the stuff that you can do. But the mystery of what's going to happen on this particular night or with this particular girl, that, that doesn't go away.
1: Yeah, you can always meet new girls, learn about a new person, have a new adventure with someone. And, you know, meeting, discovering new people is also very fascinating. You shouldn't forget the human aspect of it either.
0: So I also want to say you are the single most long-term consistent expert level seducer I've ever heard of. So most guys, even the very good guys, may be active for four, five, six, seven years, but eventually their lives take them in other directions. So they get married, they have a kid, they start a business, they change focuses. And sometimes they come back, shake off some rust, and get good again, only to take another break with a girlfriend or work or what have you. Yet you have continued going out almost every weekend, picking up girls weekly for a decade and a half, lockdowns notwithstanding. So what's kept you at it so long?
1: So, I mean, first of all, I couldn't get married or get kids. I mean, I could, but I'm still a bit, you know, I'm still pretty young, right? So I didn't have really, I've never been in that life situation where that was kind of uh, the norm, even though I'm kind of closing into that age where it's normal to get married and get kids. You're good there. I'll probably get kids one day. I'll see about marriage. But the reason I'm still at it is because I'm still young. I'm not in that, you know, settle down age yet. But it's hard to tell what will happen in 10 years, I can't, I can't say. But at least for now, what I can say is that, you know, I'm just fascinated about pickup and seduction as a hobby, but also as a theoretical intellectual occupation. So you have both those dimensions. It's, it's more existential than just as a mean to an end to go crazy. I'm not out there to get yet another girl to fuck. I'm out there to either discover something, meet a fantastic girl, or have a crazy story, and those things are, in my opinion, a higher purpose in many ways. Because discovering the truth about human interaction—that is, in my opinion, a pretty difficult task, but also a very, you know, very uh, satisfying task. You know, whenever you discover stuff.
0: One other thing I'd like to ask before we dive in: a big focus of yours is improving the meat-to-lay ratio, which we mentioned earlier. We're talking about one in a hundred, one in fifty, one in twenty. So what is that exactly and how has yours changed over the years and what do you typically see with guys in general as well as with students you work with?
1: Back in the days, I was a bit too risk-averse um, and you know, sometimes I would, you know, I, was, I would never get rejected and then but some nights I wouldn't get laid because I didn't push it either. So what I did is kind of finding the perfect balance and that is what gets, gets you the best meet to lay ratio because the thing with the meet to lay ratio, what it gives you as an indicator is how consistent you are.
0: And by meet-to-lay, we mean how many of the girls that you meet do you actually get into bed?
1: Exactly, absolutely. And you know, that's a good indicator uh, to know how well you're doing. But why is consistency so important? Well, in my opinion, first of all, there is, of course, this ego thing, right? You know, you're consistent. You have a good meet-to-lay ratio. That's cool. But the real reason, in my opinion, is that the higher your meet-to-lay ratio is, the more selective you can become. Because if you have a better ratio, you have, there's a higher chance that you get the girl you actually desire. And I think that is, you know, if you want to reach an advanced level, you, kinda, you can't just go for any girl that jumps in your arm. You can, sure. Some nights you want to have it easy. That's cool. That's totally fine. But, you know, eventually and ultimately you, you want to get that girl. You know, she's the hottest in the club. You want to go for it. And that's what you want to, you know, become able to do. That is what an advanced guy really is, in my opinion. That's one of the factors that makes him advanced, of course. And that is why I'm so obsessed with me to lay ratio, because, it, you know, it gives me that power to choose who I want to be with. Uh, but it also kind of gives me an indicator of how well I'm doing in, with my game during a certain period of time. You know, if I have low momentum, that is when I have a bad period, you know, stress, tired, whatever, then my meet to lay ratio will be worse. You know, I will maybe get one in 20 girls or maybe one in 10 or when I'm on fire, I will get one in three, you know, you know each night and you know that is so you can tell me where I'm at and you know I can also adjust my strategy based on my momentum like when I'm on high momentum I can be a bit more bolder because my vibe is on point and I can get away with much more whereas if I have low momentum I'll be more risk averse more you know take it more slowly make the right moves and avoid mistakes so you know that's a good way to kind of calibrate to your mood how you feel during a certain period of time. But it also you know, tells you, you know, if you have to work on your consistency. If your meet to lay ratio goes, you know, gets worse when you do a little change in your game, that means that change wasn't good. So you can remove that change. Or if you make a little change and your ratio is, is better, then you know that change works. So it's a good indicator to adjust your game and to calibrate better and actually eventually get, become a better seducer.
0: All right, let's talk a little bit about your method. So I want to start with some stuff that's useful for guys who are new to sex talk because it's a specialized skill. So you have seven rules of sex talk you train your students in. Now we're not going to go into all them today because I'm going to be talking for four hours, but I want to ask you about one of the rules. Rule number two, be dirty, but not too dirty. So how does a guy, especially a guy who's new to sex talk, gauge what's dirty enough versus what is too dirty and does that change dependent on the girl and the situation?
1: Yeah, the last part is totally true. When I say that, you know, what is too dirty or not dirty enough depends on the situation, how far into the interaction you are. For instance, you just met her and she's a bit cold. You're not going to go dirty, right? Not too dirty, maybe not dirty at all. And Then once the compliance is getting better, you may get a bit dirtier. And once, you know, things have really evolved, then, you know, things have... That's when you can actually go really dirty. So, but the thing is, if you go too dirty too quickly, you know, you cause unnecessary resistance, right? But if you go not dirty enough, she will not be stimulated, you'll just be a dude talking to her. And you don't wanna fall into that trap because a dude who's just talking to her, who's nice, you know, she's stumbled across many of those and that's nothing special to her. So you kinda wanna have this sweet spot. Now, that said, if you go a little bit too dirty, or not dirty enough, you can easily tell and adjust. So basically, you know, one more aspect that I think is very important is to kind of like teach, you know, a method for the students to know the sweet spot. And there are two ways I do that. The first one is to, you know, get them really familiar with the principle of escalating the vibe, following a ladder. Basically start light, see how she reacts. If she reacts good, keep escalating. If she reacts really good, you know, escalate much faster. If she's reacting, you know, a bit neutral, stay where you are, or maybe push it a little bit, but not too much. And if she's reacting badly, that's when you take a step back because then you have work to do. You know, you gotta up the compliance, make her feel comfortable, and then eventually, you know, resume and keep escalating. So the first one is, you know, how to escalate, you know, with a ladder, how to progress the vibe, escalate from social to sexual gradually, and also how to calibrate to her response while you do that. That's the first aspect. The second aspect is to also make them not really fear pushing too, a little bit too much. If you even get a negative reaction, you know where you have her, it's information. I used to tell my students, you know, even though something may not work, at least you got information. Remember, information is everything because you cannot be calibrated if you don't have information. If you're stuck somewhere on a neutral vibe, you don't have information. You don't know if you're too slow or too fast. So you kind of always want to trigger a bit of, of a reaction but you don't want to push it so far that it, you know, causes a a devastating blow in regards to resistance, right? So, basically, knowing how to calibrate by pushing things and calibrate your response, but also keep in mind that information is key and try to push it. That is a good way to kind of, you know, get that balance of not too dirty, but dirty enough, and not too little dirty, right, but dirty enough.
0: You have another rule, rule number seven, that states you should leave a woman wanting more. More sex talk, that is. So how do you make that happen?
1: So I usually tell my students that, you know, a bad seducer is a guy who doesn't, you know, trigger any strong emotions in a woman. A good seducer is one who triggers good emotions. A really good seducer is one who makes her really feel really strong emotions and desire and all that. But the real pro is the one who, you know, triggers those strong emotions, very strong emotions, but also leaves her wanting more. Because the last part is so important because the moment, you know, you change subject, whatever, she'll be wanting more. So she'll be more invested into the conversation. But there's another dimension, which is that she will always, you know, start seducing herself, you know, start, you know, wondering what's he going to say next? How is he? Become curious. Want more of the good stuff you're saying that is stimulating because women do like stimulation just like men, by the way. So that's a very key thing. And one way this is done is, for example, to talk about something juicy and before you reach the climax, change the subject. So she's like, okay, he said something really exciting, but I want more of it. You know, that is compliance right there. And that is basically what this rule is trying to accomplish. Get the student to do those things, leave her wanting more, because that makes it so much easier to progress and escalate the vibe. Because not only will she be more receptive, but she'll be happy whenever you keep escalating the vibe again. And that smoothens the whole process up.
0: And I think it's worth highlighting how important to seduction this whole creating emotions in the woman is. You know, like you're saying, if she's neutral, then you don't know where you're at with her. You have to create some emotions so that you can gauge where you're at. And, and you know, the really great seducer is creating emotions and then he's not fully satisfying her. He's leaving her wanting more of the emotions that he can create. So she's trying to get more and more out of him. And it's this whole thing that a lot of guys, particularly guys that are beginners, are missing, and they're just going up and saying their stuff, and and they're not thinking about creating emotions. They're thinking about well, what does what does the woman want? Am I meeting her criteria? They're not thinking about I need to be inspiring these emotions. And as you get better and better as a seducer, that becomes a bigger and bigger part of your focus.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. And uh, I would say that even intermediate guys keep forgetting about you know leaving her wanting more because they have quite a bit of material and they use that and they keep bombarding her with material. But then what happens is that, you know, she's never left wanting more. And, and there's also a trap here, which is if you only keep stimulating her nonstop, there will be a form of inflation happening, right? That eventually she'll be like, okay, I'm getting so bombarded with stimulation. Now I'm getting used to it and then it loses its effect. So not only can you actually get in trouble, if you don't leave her wanting more but by leaving her wanting more everything becomes so much more powerful so there's like there's like a double benefit here
0: yeah so let's talk gambits yeah. you're a big fan of using gambits that is tried and true scripts or sequences you take a woman through that create a predictable response in her or relatively predictable so gambits can be very powerful, but they're also, you know, they've kind of fallen out of fashion among most seduction coaches today, which is a loss because most very skilled guys use gambits, whether it is the guy's own gambit or somebody else's that he's adopted. So can you tell me what a gambit is and why you think it's important that students get used to using them?
1: So gambit serves two purposes, in my opinion, actually three. The first one is to to kind of give you uh, certain tools as an example, basically, of something that works because you've crafted something with a trusted theme, which has a certain purpose and who has been tested and you know it's powerful. And it has all those mechanisms of things you can achieve, right? Like setting a sexual frame, for example. Communicate sexual pricing, which is, you know, one of my, my special tools, basically, which is making her see you as this experienced lover, or you can set a frame of, you know, sex positive frame where she feels you're non-judgmental, or you can set a frame of high value or even whatever, right? Anything. So you can basically cram up all those benefits, all those mechanisms that can up her compliance and facilitate the whole process into one gambit that's been tested. You know how to use it. You know when to use it. You know how it works. So, and then when you do that, you have a weapon of mass seduction. Now, the other purpose a gambit serves is that it gives you an example of something that works, so you can actually use the gambits as an inspiration for freestyling so in an ideal world, which you know we can try to replicate is that you have certain tested gambits which you can use whenever you're in trouble or you really need this extra you know, push you know, whenever you need that like this kind of a get out jail free card, but then you can also use them as a template for how certain teams can be delivered or how certain mechanisms or benefits from those mechanisms can be implicated in your interaction, you know, so you can add some spice. So basically use as a template for how you can actually naturally talk and, and have this natural conversation because many guys I see these days, you know, especially with this whole new natural game thing is that they approach a girl and then they just talk, they're just fluffing. They're just a guy talking with her and hoping for the best. You know, unless you're lucky, that's not going to work. You need some spice. You need something to upper compliance, something to stimulate her. you need all that. And one way to do that is to have gambits that can give you an idea of how that can be done. And when you count, then you can also have this get out jail free card and use that. So it serves two purposes here. And the third purpose is it's a great tool to teach people those mechanisms because they can see how they all fit together and, you know, they can replicate them and use those gambits to create your own or own variation of it or even their own gambits. So, you know, three purposes. One, to give a template on how a good conversation with all its spice basically works and how you can add them to a conversation. The second purpose is a get out jail free card, you know, when you need that old push. The third thing is to actually, you know, teach guys mechanisms so they can use them and create their own gambits eventually.
0: Those are some great benefits. You're kind of a mad scientist of gambits. There are a lot of guys out there that are using your eight types of orgasms routine as just one example. And, you know, a funny detail you told me just the other day is that when you made it up, there actually was not an eighth type of orgasm. You only had six or seven. You actually didn't come up with the eighth orgasm until uh, a couple of years later. Was the the full body orgasm? You know, when I heard that one, I thought yeah, that sounds a little bit fishy. So I guess that's the reason why. So, what do you think makes you so good at coming up with these sex talk gambits that work really, really well, and so many guys end up using?
1: So first, a little little comment on the uh, on the eight half orgasm gambit. Actually, the one funny thing is that no girls have actually you know, busted my balls about me only mentioning six or seven orgasms. They just keep listening. They never stop me and be like, oh, shit, you didn't tell this eighth one. So, you know, I just made an eighth one.
0: Yeah. And do you think that's because they don't want to wreck the vibe or do you think they get so caught up that they forget about the eighth one? They don't
1: care. I don't think they notice it and I don't think they really care either. You know, what's the point? What's in it for them? And I don't even think that they're even paying attention because when you are in in an interaction with a stranger, you don't count. You know the amount of you know subjects they talk about. You don't do that. You know women don't do that. Most men don't either. But but you know I want to just get back to this because the reason actually this is not a this wasn't a problem was that even though they may react, I still leave them wanting more. Right? I'd, I only told six. So even if they consciously w- knew about it but didn't confront me with it, they still you know would think, oh, he didn't tell me the eighth one, and they'll be curious about it, so you leave her wanting more. And also the benefit here is that whenever the vibe starts fading out a little bit, I can go back in and say, like, oh, hey, by the way, I forgot to tell her the eighth one, and then you're back on fire. So it's, uh, it's a real there's a lot of benefits here, so it's actually a bit deliberate, too, I've got to be honest. Now, how do I actually come up with gambits? It's, there are multiple things here. First of all, you know, I go out a lot, and a few gambits, they just occur when you end up in a conversation with the girl and you talk about a certain subject and then you realize, oh shit, this was actually really good. Because once you go home, you're like, oh, maybe that's actually the, did have an impact on my interaction with her. Maybe that had an impact on the end result. And then you look at it and you try to understand why it worked, how it worked. And, you know, it did have anything to do with the girl, with the vibe of the venue or with the timing and all that stuff. So basically what is very important here is to have this of a framework that you can use to diagnose your night out which is something i teach guys by the way i really teach them this framework so they can analyze their game so they can know what worked why it worked how to make it work better and also if it didn't work what didn't work and why it didn't work and how they can you know change it up or you know change it with something else and the other reason i think is because i'm reading a lot of you know text related subjects you know social subjects and all that and, you know, I usually tell my students, you know, they tell me like, oh, I don't have any ideas for any gambits or any themes I can talk with girls. I tell them, hey, you know what, just read a book on sexology or uh, erotic novel or whatever, you know, a philosophy book about sex or a sociology book about sex. And you get some ideas and you can try it out and see if it works. If it doesn't, well, too bad. If it does, well, you may have stumbled upon a golden nugget. So, you know, reading a bit, discussing with people, discussing with girls, going out in the field, trying out stuff you know, and and see if it works. That's the way to discover the gambits. And I, you know, do all of that. And I want my students to do the same.
0: All right. Well, we're going to come back to gambits. And you've got a new one in particular to share with us today. But before we spell out specific gambits, I'd like to talk about what you're doing with your gambits. So there's a little thing that you call sexual prizing. So what is that and how does it work?
1: All right. So actually there's two dimensions. There is sexual prizing and there is sexual reframing. And I know if if you remember I mentioned earlier, you know, you want to stimulate her, but you also want to, you know, you want to create desire, but you also want to make her feel allowed to, you know, desire you or to act upon those desires. So sexual pricing is basically the tool that makes her feel desire. And it's a bit different than just arousal, which is based by touching, you know, you turn her on. Because this actually makes her consciously desire you, she has a reason to desire you because the way sexual pricing works is that you actually convey that you are a skilled, experienced lover and and basically that is done by talking about sex, sharing sexual knowledge, sharing sexual experience, sharing even sexual opinions, opinions about sex, talking about something you know you've experienced, something you something you, uh, you know about women, something you know about sexuality, something you know about the female mind that relates to sexuality, all that stuff. And that will make her feel, oh, shit, that guy, he knows what he's doing. And if I do get him to bed, he's going to give me the sex of my life. And, you know, I, I don't know if, if you've ever, you know, when you started out, you know, you went out, you talked with this girl. She wasn't that hot. She wasn't the sexiest in the club, but you talk with her anyway. And then she starts talking about sex, about how she happens to be very skilled at something sexual that you are very into, let's say you're very into blowjobs. I know that's not your thing, really, but let's say you are. Let's say you are, uh, you know, some money guys are. And she talks about how she loves deep throating and gagging and that special technique she learned in this porn movie or whatever, you know. You know, you'll be like, shit, I may just want to consider going home with her to get that, you know, that powerful sensation, that, that good sex. And in fact, most women are sexually frustrated because you know, even though women can have stronger orgasms than men, they have a harder time. So they get less often orgasms and good sex. So that's why this is so valued. And that's the power of sexual prizing because she feels that you are the guy who can finally satisfy her, right? And, and that is the benefit of sexual pricing, And you convey that through sex talk. Now, the other one is sexual reframing, which is basically to share sex positive frames you know, that, that you're non-judgmental, that you are, you know, respectful, that you are, you know, that you know about her situation, that you are, you know, low-key, so she won't get judged, so she can feel very secure about having sex with you. So now just imagine for a moment, you are the guy who's going to give her the sex of her life, and she's going to get no social consequences from it and be comfortable. Well, guess what? I don't see any reason for why she wouldn't go for it, you know. Now it's all about making it happen, escalate the vibe and take care of logistics, right?
0: Indeed. So once you're the sexual prize and you frame things so that women feel totally allowed to have sex with you, do girls just chase you for sex? Do they start trying to drag you to the bathroom? Or what is the actual effect? So how would a guy recognize that he's successfully sexually prized himself and and framed her this way?
1: So it has happened that girls have dragged me to the bathroom. But I got to be honest, it doesn't happen that often. Because women by nature, most women, that is, there are some exceptions, of course, they're not like dominant in their nature. So they're not going to make it happen. And there's also a bit of stigma around girls making it happen, but usually, you know, any so- typical sign of interest that you'll see when you do something right, they will occur, but much stronger. And also, she may start touching you a little bit more. And, you know, the most usual, like, you know, mind-blowing response that I get is when she starts asking you uh, something along the lines of, so where do you live? Just out of the blue. And when the girls ask you out of the blue where you live, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a good sign. Yeah,
0: it's a loud and clear sign. Or
1: sometimes it will be like, okay, are you some kind of a sex guru? You know, it's like, okay, that means you, that can be a test. It's a bit of a mix of a test and a compliment at the same time. So, you know, you just answer something like, yeah, I'm just a guy who enjoys having a good time and enjoying myself and discovering myself. And, you know, you're good. Or she'll be like, okay, who are you? Like, because she can relate to so many things you said or she's so blown away by it. You know, that's also a very strong response that, you know, usually means you're doing something right. And, you know, the way to the bed is pretty, pretty, pretty Mm -hmm. short. Or you will have something along the lines of like, uh, you know, get very invested in a conversation and, you know, basically start complimenting you and be like, you know, you're interesting, you're fascinating, you know, you're so right. where did you learn all this stuff? You know, and she gets very intrigued and very, the conversation happens so much Very smoothly, it's like the conversation becomes as if you've been fuck buddies for uh, for a few months. It's 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 mind blowing.
0: Yeah. So, what ways do you teach students to enable them to do this sexual prizing with the women they meet?
1: The short answer is sex talk. So, basically, find ways to communicate that you are that experienced, skilled, knowledgeable lover, but doing so in a way that doesn't trigger those defense mechanisms, and that is. To follow a certain frame that is very important. This is very important. You know, you mentioned that uh, we're only going to discuss two rules of sex talk, but this one is important, which is probably rule number one. You need to have the frame that is you are a sexual guy. You know what you're doing. You know what you want. You know what she wants, and you will provide her the best sex of her life. You can, but only if she is behaving in a way that makes you feel that she deserves it. And, and the reason this frame is very important is because you are communicating that you can have sex with her, not that you will. Because if you communicate that you will or that you want to have sex with her right away, you'll trigger those defense mechanisms. Whereas if you communicate that you may or that you can have sex with her, then you kind of create this mixed, you know, a little bit of a mixed signals thing. And she'll become curious about... Okay, this guy is so sexual, but why, you know, is he going to have sex with me or not? And then you keep her wondering and you leave her wanting more. Again, back to that. That is so important. So you get all those things. So not only will you not trigger those defense mechanisms, but you'll also make her chase you because she will be curious about whether or not you're actually going to have sex with her or not. Basically, the power of push and pull, the power of mixed signals, you know, shouldn't underestimate that. And that combined with sexual pricing, that's a bomb. That's a bomb right there. That's a weapon of mass seduction right there.
0: All right. So we've been talking about students and what you're teaching to your students a lot. You first started coaching a few years back. And I remember at the beginning, you were a bit hesitant. So you didn't know if you could train other guys to do what you're doing. You didn't know what kind of students you'd get. You're a few years in now. You've worked with a variety of students. You keep your student numbers low due to how limited your own time is. I don't know if guys know this, but you're a doctoral student and you have a full going out life. So it's not like free time is abundant for you. I wonder if you'd tell me about a student you've had. So how was he when he came to you? What did you work with him on? What his journey was like and what sort of results he's getting now?
1: So uh, basically I had this guy I took under my wing for a very like a prolonged coaching, kind of a bit like the packages that, you know, we're going to offer. Take time, you know, it's not just one session, it's over time. And I took him under my wing in person. He was an in-person student. And he had just moved from Syria, which, you know, most of us know by now is a war zone. And he's been experiencing a lot of trauma. You know, most guys, when they start out, they have a bit of trauma, but this guy had real, like, kind of quite a bit of baggage. And, you know, he went out doing stuff. He had a lot of potential. But then, you know, I started teaching him a few things and he started getting a bit better. But, you know, the real power was when he had, you know, bad nights, because, you know, when you start out, you do fail a bit you know, he was getting a bit frustrated. And I told him, you know, it's not about success one night. It's about the long term. You know, you failed tonight. That is that that's sad. I feel you. But if that failure allows you to become better so that you get 10 better nights, you know, that is the key. So let's make sure that this failure leads to 10 better nights. So what we do is we break up the whole night. We look at what worked, what didn't work. When did it fail? What happened? What can you do better? Uh, was there something wrong with the calibration, the material, um, the girl, him, the delivery, or perhaps the frame, all that stuff that we look into, like we break it down so that he can adjust and do it better. And now eventually start getting success, right? And then, you know, we will break the night down again and see what works and try to make it work again to replicate the success. Because many guys, you know, they go out, they have this great night, they get results and they're happy about it and they have all reasons to be happy about it. but They don't learn about their success. They don't break it down properly so they can replicate that in a similar situation. Right. So that's what we did and eventually started getting a lot of results. I started teaching him a bit more advanced, you know, material, sex talk, gambits, all that stuff, and eventually started getting really good. And his real success was when he actually went to this high end venue. The first time he went there, he was shitting himself. It was intimidating, which it can be, by the way. But eventually he started pulling some, he pulled a really hot girl who was actually an Olympic champion of the country he was, you know, living in. And he, um, he actually, she ended up becoming a TV star a year later. And that was the moment he felt like, okay, I just nailed it. I'm good. I, I know my shit. And, you know, after that, you know, he's been hooked and addicted. And I've also had other students who, you know, they come from different places. Some are a bit too shy when it comes to, you know, escalating the vibe with them. You know, I had one guy, he was very afraid of, you know, escalating the vibe. So we went through all that kind of stuff that related to how to deal with potential resistance, because learning how to deal with resistance makes it so much less scary, right? And how to escalate more smoother. And eventually he started getting real sexual because he wasn't sexual enough. And now suddenly now, most of his interaction at least leads to make out, if not getting back to his place in sex. And, you know, I also had guys who have been too direct and you know, getting, losing, getting rejected a bit too prematurely. And with those guys, we kind of slow it down a little bit. They don't have an issue with escalating the vibe, but more of an issue related to calibration. So it's important to see that there's a lot of different issues at play. And I also have one student who actually made me a little bit upset because you know, he was struggling a bit. And then eventually he made it work you know, after a little bit of training and stuff. And everything was done perfectly. You know, he broke down the night, everything was perfect. I was like, this is great, man. And then he forgot to download Uber and he didn't get to Uber back home and he didn't get late. And I'm like, dude, did I just spend so much time <laughs> with you? And you just forgot to download Uber, man. Jesus. That's frustrating. I can tell you one thing the guy, he has Uber now. <laughs> I can tell you that much. I'll bet. And logistics are important. You know, logistics is the kind of thing that you only make the mistake once because, you know, logistical issues, when you fuck up with logistics, no, you know, if you'll have cons back at home where your toilet is dirty or shit like that and you fuck up because of that, you'll learn. You'll learn and you'll never make the mistake again.
0: Yeah, <laughs> anyway. the mistakes you make once.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, these are the different type of students, you know, and it's, that's what, kind of what I enjoy with it. It's to deal with those different type of guys who have different stories to tell, different goals, different personalities, but, you know, also different issues when it comes to seduction. And, you know, I, I've seen it all, so it's not an issue to pinpoint what's exactly wrong and and work with that, you know, because many students, they come in, they have an idea of what they need to work on and and then, you know, we talk a little bit and then we realize, oh, shit, that is not actually the issue. That is a real issue. And we work on that and then they see results. And, you know, it's always nice to see results happen. I love when some of my students send me some success stories of mail. I have one guy who moved abroad and got, like, laid on, on the beach. By talking with a girl on the beach, you know, perfectly well execution, and I was so happy reading that. You know, it it warms my heart. It makes my make my work valuable in a way. I feel valued. I feel like he's getting value out of it. It's yeah, it's it's a pleasure. That's all I can say.
0: Phenomenal. So let's go back to gambits, and then I also want to ask you about hooking, which has been a big topic. Guys are asking about a lot these days. Then we'll talk about what you're looking for in students and who'd be qualified. So gambits. You've always got new ones you're cooking up you've got another new one coming up we'll probably be sharing it on the site in a couple of weeks or perhaps in a month or two i'm not sure how many articles you have in the queue before that one but what can you tell me about the perverted purity gambit
1: all right so actually the perverted purity gambit is one that i've kind of made up for this little podcast here because the perversion gambit will come actually there will be two versions of it posted on, on the website so i want to make something unique here and i also want to demonstrate that you can actually combine gambits and make some of your, of your own on the spot. So I'm going to mix this with the new gambit that will be posted and also use an older one, which is called the Purity Gambit, which is on the forum. And if you're not on the forum, well, that's an excuse to join us there. So basically, that gambit, that, pure, that perverted purity gambit, will go something along those lines. Because, you know, we need to have a transition because many guys do struggle with transitions. which is something I teach, too, by the way. Lots of ways to transition to sex talk and all that. I'll give you a very basic transition, which would be something along the lines of, hey, you know what? Actually, I had this little interesting conversation with my friend Sarah the other day. And, you know, she told me that, you know, guys, they want sex, but they also seek this kind of, they want women to be pure. They want this purity aspect, this asexual Madonna aspect. Why is that? And I was like, yeah, well, there's probably something to it. But actually, let's take a step back, Sarah. I think there is, uh, what is purity? She's like, well, you know, clean, not naughty, and all that stuff. Oh, I told her, well, actually, I think, you know, purity, it's perhaps being pure, in a sense, true to oneself, true to one's desires, true to one's sexuality. As a matter of fact, actually, I read a very interesting text the other day, which covered sexual perversion from this guy called Gerald Levinson. And he talked about how actually abstination, abstention, not going not going for it and holding back on your sexual desires is actually perverted because for him perversion is basically you do opting for a suboptimal version of something so in that case not going for your full potential is perversion and in regards to sex that would be not going for your full sexual potential like discovering other human beings, connecting with people, discovering your own sexuality, learning about your sexuality, learning new stuff, discovering new sex positions, new sex not discovering new knowledge about sex, all that stuff. You don't get to do that if you don't go for it. And then you don't opt for your ultimate sexual self. So then you're perverted. And how can you be actually pure if you're perverted? Well, you can't. So perhaps, you know, to not be perverted, you have to go for it and just you know, really experiment sexually and be curious about things. And that is by being purist, because that's also being true to oneself, because people really do desire discovering themselves. So I think there's two dimensions here. So this gambit is actually quite interesting, because you reframe perversion as, you know, not having sex, basically. And it's actually quite interesting, because the philosopher, which this gambit was inspired from, is actually a real philosopher who wrote a paper about this. And by the way, there will be a reference in the article when it comes up. So people can read their actual article from, from the philosopher. And so basically you reframe perversion as not having sex. And nobody wants to be perverted. So suddenly she wants to fall for your frame, which is more sex positive, and she doesn't want to be perverted, so she can't hold back anymore, right? And also she wants to be pure. And now pure is also something that is sexual, which is being true to one's sexual desire. So now she doesn't want to be impure or perverted. And the way, her way to not be impure perverted is to actually have sex and be you know be a little bit freaky and that's a good frame because now you suddenly communicate that that's what you desire and also that's something good and you convince her that that is the way to do things and she will want to accept that frame because it's a very desirable frame it's a frame where there's freedom and and you know passion and desire and all that stuff so she's likely to accept it so that's a very good frame way to kind of um You know, set those sex-positive frames, those reframing sex as something good. But there's also some sexual pricing here because it's very obvious that someone who shares those frames is someone who's experienced, right? Because otherwise, you wouldn't have this reflection about sex, right? Because that's the way an experienced person would talk. So there's a lot of things crammed up in one gambit. And again, that's the power of gambits, you know, when you can cram up so many benefits into one thing. So you get that powerful, you know, weapon of mass seduction.
0: Seems like a super useful gambit. So now when you work with students, what do you focus on when teaching them these gambits? Because my guess is there's a lot more to it that you're teaching them than simply just saying the words.
1: So the mechanisms we talked about, you know, how to put in sexual pricing, you know, how to, you know, reframe sex as something positive and not a big deal. And also, you know, set the sexual frame, what sexual frame you want to set. Is it one of freakiness, one of uh, dirtiness, one of, you know, whatever, but also there is a delivery. And, you know, I don't know if you noticed, but the way I deliver the gambit right here is a very straightforward way of talking, you know, just as a normal conversation. And also, you know, I think I it's... Noticed, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that is good because, you know, you still convey those powerful things, but you're talking normally. So it becomes more acceptable for her on a social level to listen to you and accept your frame. So you're not doing anything fancy, hypnotic. There is a niche for that. And there are situations where that can be useful. But in like 80% or 85% situation, talking normally like any other conversation is actually the most beneficial because it becomes less weird to her, right? Also, you may notice that, you know, I don't sound scripted. And that's important because then it feels natural to her. It feels like a natural conversation. So that kind of sometimes add a bit of imperfections when I deliver it. And that is very easy to teach students, you know, to add imperfections because that means just, you know, they just have to focus less when you deliver them, make it more natural. Because if it sounds too scripted, she'll be like, oh, did you read that in the book? That's very important. And also, you know, I, I work a lot on delivery, pace and more importantly, and this is something students struggle a lot with, is the transitions. You now, how do I get to talk about sex? And I teach them uh, multiple techniques. You know, there are there is, for example, conversational bridging, which is, you know, gradually switching to the conversation. There are assumptions, so to escalate with assumptions and up to sexual subject. There is, of course, um, how is it called again? Using uh, proxies, basically, as I did, you know, I talked with a friend the other day, or I went to a dentist and I read in this magazine about this subject, whatever. That's a proxy. So, you know, I teach them those things because most guys actually struggle with how to get into the converse, sexual conversation. So I, I spend a lot of time on that, if it's needed, of course.
0: Okay. I also want to talk about hooking. So hooking is a huge bugbear for a lot of guys in our community. So guys get really frustrated approaching girls and opening them and having those girls not hook. So the hook, of course, is just when the girl gets sucked into the conversation and now she doesn't want to end as opposed to when she could take it or leave it, she doesn't really care. So you have two totally separate angles that you use to hook with. These can be used jointly or separately. It depends on the situation. The first one is called BSL. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: So the BSL stands for Bait Stimulation. And locking in, and I try to make it as simple as possible because you know when you approach a girl and you try to hook, things are a bit stressful, right? It's you, she's a stranger, things are shaky. You're not settled into conversation yet. You know your brain power is all focused on, on you know the fear and the excitement. So you, I want to make it easy. And the BSL is basically bait, bait her in, just as you know with uh, with a clickbait as I mentioned earlier, and that can be anything uh, from you know you know who you look like, you know oh who. Gunwitch, thank you for that one, by the way. And Or, do you know what? I actually read something really fascinating. Did you know, actually, that most gay people actually always have this, like, situation where there's one bottom and one top? But that's actually, that is related to just their actual interaction with whoever they are. You know that? And she's like, what? Yeah, really? And she, that's total bullshit. I just made that up right now. But, you know, that subject that can be intriguing or even a conversation. Bait like, hey, I have a question for you, by the way. I, I wonder about something. If I, am, uh, if I consider myself a female and I want to have sex with a girl, does that make me a lesbian? You know, and she's like, what? So that, no, you actually have a, a bait and stimulation because it's stimulating. So the bait is basically something that catches her attention and makes her invest into the conversation. Like the one I just used, she will have an opinion about that. No, you're not a girl. No, well, clearly not. And, she's, and she will say something about it, so she's baited in. Now, stimulation is basically saying something that stimulates her, that makes her feel excited about talking with you. And baiting and stimulation can happen at the same time. You know, there's, it's not like a process, start with bait and then you know, go to stimulation. It can be one and the same, but it can also be linear in the sense that you start with a bait and then you know, go to the stimulation. That's up to you and whatever you use as material. And then whenever you get stimulated with the girl or the girls, you will reach what we call a high note, you know, basically a burst of good emotions. And this is a good timing to escalate the interaction. And the way you do that is to lock in. Now, locking in is basically changing the whole scenario, position you in a way that makes them feel that you are part of their group or that you know them. Because by positioning yourself in a way that, you know, looks like you know them, makes them backward rationalize that they actually know you. And then you have rapport established right away, and the hook becomes solidified. Such an easy technique that's underrated. For instance, one way to do that is you're having a conversation, you stimulate them, they start laughing, they have this good emotion, and you're like, hey, by the way, could we just uh, move over there for a second? There's a bit of a wind here. It's going to be less wind over there. Let's go there. Bam. And then when you walk over to that place with them, not only did you do a change of location, which can establish rapport in itself, but as you change location, that gives you an excuse or a way to reposition yourself in a way that is more, makes it look like you know them, like positioning yourself between the girls or leaning into the wall while they're facing outside and you know, all that stuff. And it's so easy to do and so few guys does it. And actually, when I talk with my students, I always tell them, did you lock in? And they will say, no. Well, that's why you didn't get the proper hook you know, lock in, lock in, lock in. And then they lock in and, you know, they will realize that most of their good hooks is where they either locked in by themselves deliberately or where the lock-in happened naturally for whatever reason. So that's why it's such an important thing. And I have many uh, locking in techniques and most of them are very easy to pull off. The difficult part with locking in is to remember to do it.
0: Yeah. And we've talked about it before. And, you know, you said to me that you regard locking in as a very underrated technique. And I very much agree. And, you know, it's one of those things beginners don't do, intermediates don't do. uh, Guys just forget to do it. And I wonder if you'd tell me why you think that is. And uh, you already talked a little bit about how you get students to start doing it. But why do you think guys are so negligent a lot of the time of locking in?
1: I actually have no idea. Perhaps, I mean, in my opinion, it took me actually a while Uh, to discover this technique. Well, I did read about it in my earlier days, but I rediscovered it much later because when I read about it, I was like, yeah, just move her a few meters away. Uh, Okay, that's not juicy. That doesn't sound fancy, right? It's not exciting. It's not like this magical one-liner or something like that that you want to learn when you're a beginner. So you kind of neglect it because it doesn't sound fancy. But sometimes non-fancy techniques are the most powerful ones. You It's just like hitting the right timings doesn't sound too fancy, but Fancy that users use it, right? They hit the right timing, timings. So I think it's just because it doesn't sound too fancy and people don't talk about it because it just doesn't sound too good, but it's really powerful. Yeah.
0: Now, right now you're opening up three spots in your coaching roster, which you don't usually do. Usually you only take on one student at a time due to your workload. So you're looking for specific types of students, however. So first off, can you tell me what sort of students you are unable to work with?
1: So it's not like I'm unable to work with them. It's more like I feel that they're not the kind of students who will benefit the most out of my program. Sure, I'm totally able to teach beginners and I have done so occasionally. I had one not long ago, but what I realize is that I'm one of the few guys who's been around for 16 years, right? And I have this advanced knowledge. So I feel that the people who will get the most out of my coaching will be intermediate and advanced guys who just want to reach the next level. Because most coaches, they've been around for five years and they're totally able to teach those beginner guys, right? I feel like, but however, a guy who's been there five years in, he can't teach a guy who's been there for three years in or who's approximately equally good as him. So they need a guy who's been there for a long, long time. And that's why I feel that the beginner is not, you know, if if you look at the benefits the student will get, the beginners are not really those who get the most benefit. Those who will get the most benefit is... The more experienced guys, and also I feel like uh, most beginners they will need more of a coach who's more of a therapist in a way, who will you know take care of the limiting beliefs, motivate them, and sometimes you know deal with them having a bit of you know not mental issues but you know sadness and depression a little bit. Many beginners face that, right? They have been rejected so much, you know, they feel bad about themselves. I need a bit of motivation, and that's totally fine. But I feel like it's not really what I'm specialized in. I'm more of a consultant in a way. You know, I'm, I'm the guy who wants to look at their game and find tweaks and how to better it and how to adjust so that they can get the maximum results. And it's, it's going to be a bit weird if I start talking about me to lay ratio with a guy who is too afraid to even approach, right? So, you know, that's why the beginners won't be, you know, fit for this type of coaching. And I feel also that most, you know, in this industry, we focus on the majority, right? So we focus on those beginner guys. There's a lot of products for them, a lot of coaching programs for them. But yet we need to remember that there's a lot of guys who've been into this for a bit longer who are intermediate or even advanced. And there's so little products and so little programs for them. And I want to be there to offer them something as well, you know, so that they can actually start feeling excited about, you know, learning from someone and get coaching and take their game to the whole next level.
0: So how would you describe your ideal student, the guy who's going to get the most out of training with you? you
1: know, I do want my coaching to be fun, but we're going to do some serious work. So uh, he needs to be dedicated and he needs to know that, you know, we may have a little, you know, good time and fun, but ultimately we will... I want him to feel that after the session, his brain's going to be fried and I want him to go out there. I want him to go out there. That's why I do a two-hour session, but we will get to that later. But I want to really punch the knowledge in and really... You know, basically look at everything and I wanted to be fascinated by this thing because I wanted to put in the work because I like them, I love results, and I love to see my students get results. And there won't be any results if they don't put in the work. That's the fact. If they have to go out, they have to read, they have to do the homework, they will get stuff to read after the sessions, they will have to take spend time to read stuff and to ask questions, you know, over email between the sessions and go out there and, and put the material in, write down notes after the outings and break down their game. Because that's the only way that they can reach the next level, of course, with my help, and so the ideal student is the guy who's dedicated and who's passionate about this, because we 're going to talk about a lot of advanced stuff, and we're going to talk about we're going to go really into details to tweak even the most like important but small bits of deduction of, of their game we're going to tweak them, adjust them, they're small parts, but they have a big impact on the overall picture, and we 're going to go really deep about it, so they have to be dedicated because it's going to be. You know, it's going to be kind of a university level of seduction, in a way. You know, we really want to get deep into this. So I need a guy who's dedicated and who also is able, totally comfortable to go out there and talk to girls and have an interaction, and especially an interaction that's not just opening and get rejected. They have to have a prolonged interaction because we need to look at their game as a whole, right? So we need to look at their hook game, their opening game, their uh, setting frames, their frame control, their escalation their delivery, the way to stimulate, all that stuff. We need to look at everything. So they have to be able to have a bit, you know, long interaction with girls. So that's the best way I can look at everything and come with solutions or find ways to better the things they already do right.
0: All right. Now, I want to talk about the price. But first, I want to talk about a unique value that you've been offering to students that you just mentioned a moment ago. So I don't know if this is sustainable. And I think as you take more students, you might want to cut back but at least right now for these next three students, you are offering not 12 one hour sessions, which is what all the other coaches on Girls Chase offer, but 12 two hour sessions. So guys are getting double the amount of time with you. This is super generous. You usually prefer to do one session every two weeks to give students time to implement what you discuss, but you can also do them once a week or once every three weeks, depends on the guy. So I'm of the mind that your rates should be in the same neighborhood as Hector's. Hector is currently charging $4,000 for a 12-hour package. So if your rates were the same as his, you'd be charging $8,000 for this package. Which, for the value of what guys are getting here, training on exceptionally powerful seduction methods from the best technical seducer in the world is a steal. And if we keep taking students for you, it'll probably go up there eventually. However, right now, you're offering this entire huge package at a screaming discount of just 34.97. So it's actually less than what guys pay to book our most prolific coach and for double the coaching. So that's a deal if I ever heard one. Now, could you give me a recap of everything guys get when they're coaching with you?
1: So, I can't recap everything because there's a lot, but I'll mention the most important things. Sure. So, well, the first goal of the package is to increase the student's meet to lay ratio, basically tweak every small aspect of their game to increase their success, while also being efficient. We want to be efficient, right? I want every student to be able to be more selective, right? Get the girls they actually desire, and make more girls out of the approaches they make so that they spend less time with useless interactions. So it all revolves around that. A student who coaches with me, it's one of the very few experts who has been into this literally forever. I mean, it's been, most guys are into this for four, five years, and then they start teaching. I've been into this for approximately 16 years. So it's been 16 years of experience. I've literally seen it all. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of stories to share as well. But, you know, I've seen it all. And that's something, especially intermediate guys benefit from, because there's always those weird experiences they will have that maybe needs, you know, common from someone who's been around for a while. You know, when you take a pack, this package with me, I mean, you also learn how to execute my two strategies to hooking girls. We mentioned one here. But you also get the other one, which is equally powerful in some or even more powerful in certain contexts. So, of course, we'll discuss this BSL strategy that we mentioned today. We'll get more into locking in and all that good stuff. You know, you'll, you'll get to hook girls. You'll perfectionize this part. And of course, as you mentioned, there were all these rules about sex talk. There were seven. You're going to get to know them in details and how to implement them. And of course, you know, more on how to deliver, you know, sex art properly and all that stuff. You also get my most potent sexual pricing gambits. We'll get at least six, but probably more depending. We'll find some that suits your style, right? The student's style, they're all different. So find something that works for them that they can pull off and be comfortable with. And also they will, I want the student to discover, you know, that how, that they're easy to make work. And once they get it tonality and the delivery down, and they know the mechanism and how to pull them off and when to pull them off. And we we'll also talk about all my methods, including how to calibrate yourself uh, perfectly to women, how to create the set the proper social frame, which we didn't discuss today, but which is a whole different subject about also making the woman feel comfortable about hooking up with you, that she feels that you are a guy who's suitable to have sex with on a social level. You know, have you ever had this girl who like, tells you, uh, you're not my type? Well, this time, she will tell you that you're not her type after she had sex with you. And that's the whole goal with social frame. <laughs> so, you know, you'll learn about that. So you make them feel allowed. You make them feel desire towards you. And this combo will be powerful. It will be the weapon of mass seduction. And, of course, we'll talk about how to approach girls. You know, uh, talk about the opening, how to increase the chance of hooking and not getting rejected. And we'll also, because, you know, know, I'm a risk-averse guy. I don't like rejections. I don't see a point in going through that pain. So we'll avoid, we'll learn how to deal with them when they occur, but also more importantly, how to avoid them in the first place. So it'll be 12 two-hour sessions just because I'm a talkative guy. And we're going to spend a lot of time and go into depth about things. And I really want to spend two hours because that really allows the student to get immersed, you know, get into the mojo of, you know, getting coaching, get this really into it and this focus that's why I like to do two hours. And of course, you know, when you are having a session with me, I expect the student to be totally devoted and I will be equally devoted and making sure that the student gets uh, unparalleled improvement in their meet to lay ratio and their overall success with women. And to do that, it takes time and it takes practice, but you'll get there and they will get there and it will be a good ride if you remember, as I said earlier, I regret not enjoying the time where I didn't get to enjoy the learning process. So we're going to enjoy this process and it's going to be fun and be even more fun when we hear about the results and that they get to enjoy those amazing women.
0: Incredible. Well, I know any student who signs up to coach with you is going to be getting an absolutely life-changing experience. There's only one Alec Rolstad, there's nobody else out there teaching what you teach. And it is unique, exceptionally powerful girl-getting methodology few men will ever master. Aside from you, a couple of your close friends and wingmen you've taught to, and your students. So if you want to train with Alec, sign up using the form below. A girls chase rep will give you a call within 24 to 48 hours to answer any questions you've got and make sure that you'll be a fit for Alec and Alec will be a fit for you. The first call's free and you're under no obligation. So if you're sick of grinding it out and not getting the meat to lay ratios you wish you could be getting with girls, or you even think you might wanna coach with him, throw your hat in the ring, because there's only three spots. Well, Alec, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, as always. Incredible material here, incredible stuff, and one heck of a deal for students to sign up for. And I have to say, once you start working with more students, you're probably not gonna be willing to sell your time this cheap for long. So guys, get in on this now, if you don't wanna be paying double or more four or five months down the road to coach with Alec. For now, I'm your host, Chase Amante. It's been fun talking with you, I hope you have got some great new tips and mindsets from this interview with Alec Rolstad. And if you're qualified, I hope you don't miss this chance and sign up to put your meat to lay ratio on rocket fuel with an absolute seduction legend.
1: Well, I just gotta say, if, even if you're in doubt that whether not, about whether or not you're fit or not, just give a call and we'll figure it out. Again, there's no obligation, we'll figure it out. And maybe you are suited for it and that will take your results to hold new next level. But I warn you all, once you're into it, and you get the results, and you s- enjoy, get to enjoy the lifestyle, there is no turning back. And you will not want to turn back because it's going to be a whole new experience, and a whole new way of living life, and it's going to be, you're going to end up becoming passionate about this field, because I want to share this passion with you. So uh, all I got to say is, see you on the other side, thank you. And, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, Chase. Like always.
0: Great talking, as always, Alec.
1: I'm looking forward to talk with those those guys, and I'll see you then.
0: Fantastic.